not like not foxy in a not foxy in a sexy way like foxy in a like fox-esque way there's no foxy pokemon so guys. we are not sexualizing pokemon that's not something we do here Welcome to the recommendation game. My name is Orla Mugiles. My name is Ricardo Deacon. This is a bi-weekly film podcast where we take turns to recommend a film the other has not seen. We watch them separately and then Skype to discuss them. This week's film is La Puta, Castle in the Sky. Young orphan Sheeta and her kidnapper, Colonel Muska, are flying to a military prison when their plane is attacked by a gang of air pirates led by the... <laughs> led by the matronly Dola. Escaping from a mid-air collision via a magic crystal around her neck, Sheeta meets fellow orphan Pazu, and the pair join forces to discover a mystical floating city of Laputa while pursued by both Muska and the pirates, who lust for the city's myriad treasures. It's about time you got up! <laughs> How are you feeling? Hi there. My name's Patsu. I'm really glad to see you're doing all right. You had me worried there. Go ahead. Feed him. Don't be shy. <laughs> These guys are really happy we have a visitor. Well, thank goodness. You laugh like a regular person. The way you fell from the sky, I thought that maybe you were an angel or something. Thank you very much for saving me. Oh, I'm sorry. My name's Sheeta. Sheeta? What a beautiful name. Yeah, I had to catch you. You were just floating, and I... What? Floating? Yeah. Well, I remember an airship, but I can't remember anything else. It's all you remember? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how I survived. Hmm. Well, I think I might have an idea about that. May I see your necklace for a second? This? My grandmother gave it to me. It's been in my family for generations. This week's film was chosen by Ricardo. Ricardo, why did you pick your third Miyazaki movie? Yes, I think that I should uh, put a hold for a couple of years of more Miyazaki because otherwise this will turn into a Miyazaki uh, podcast. <laughs> but Don't worry, he's going to retire and then not retire again, so... And then make 10 more movies. I'll probably just start picking uh, Takahata movies then so I can still have my Ghibli fix, but yeah. uh, uh, not break <laughs> this promise that I'm making to no one. Um, <laughs> I don't know, like I thought that uh, I watched recently um, Don't Look Up and then we watched Azor and then I was like, I'd like to see something slightly happier now. And then... I thought about Castle in the Sky, and that's why I picked it, pretty much. But I was struck by perhaps watching it, why um, maybe I thought about Don't Look Up. Not just... Don't Look Up is a... That it could be a parable about global warming, etc. And I think that uh, both when it comes to uh, humans' destruction of nature and the unknowing power of... uh, industry in the world and also uh, an anti-war message i think that this movie does it much better without making you like hit you in the head mm-hmm. constantly saying this is an important movie etc it is first and foremost an absolute riot of a movie i think that <laughs> it has one of the best pacings for an adventure film uh, it really scratches that itch of a if you're watching if you watched Indiana Jones too many times and then uh, you try to watch something that is kind of like that but it's not Indiana Jones, especially Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull because who wants to see that? <laughs> but then you you might have. I haven't seen a single Indiana Jones movie. You haven't. Nope. Jesus, that that might be a pick. Uh, Yes, so if you wanted to watch like an adventure movie like Indiana Jones, eventually you end up watching shit like 
National Treasure and National Treasure 2. Uh, and uh, even I've been guilty. Speaking of Nick Cage. <laughs> exactly. And even I have been guilty to even like double on a Da Vinci Code now and then and stuff like that. <laughs> that is in desperation more than anything. For Tom Hanks and his terrible wigs. But then, uh, uh, but I stopped in the first one. Like, uh, mediocrity has its limit. Uh, but this movie has that that adventure um feel let's say that it's the constant movement as well from place to place to place there's very few scenes that take place in the same place let's say and a lot of the time when they do take place in the same place they're in moving objects like airships and stuff that is there's constant movement in this movie and i love I love it for its animation. There's a, always a case whenever we watch this kind of movie, same as whenever we watch a musical, that you always ask the question, should this have been a musical? <laughs> you know, like, why <laughs> why is it a musical? That's a good question. And I think that this movie could not have been made in as real life, let's say. Uh, just the, uh, like we touched upon on Kiki's delivery service. I, I I just love living in this fictional Japanese European world that uh, <laughs> uh, Miyazaki creates. The, the the universe building is so incredibly detailed, even how like the mining works and stuff, like actually creating a whole society and a system. You can imagine people living there, the back gardens they give up to like a cliff. They were very, the, the Irish mommy that just shows up in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Like huge ginger woman. Like, well? uh, you know, like you can imagine her being called Neve or something in the, uh, in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Just peeling potatoes off screen. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I I love all those little details. Even, you know, it's often commented up, upon by uh, critics and uh, video essayists about the attention to detail in Miyazaki's style. But I don't think that it should be forgotten, even though it's often mentioned, because it grounds the reality of the of uh, the movie um to a large degree even little details like him putting down his meal whenever he has to pick her up as she falls down and then whenever he carries her towards uh the platform uh, making sure that his feet don't knock over the his boss's lunch uh i think it's a very funny movie as well uh which not um not all adventure movies are, but I think even in its ridiculousness, it's early Miyazaki were either like uh, in the Valley of the Wind that is just right on fantasy, post-apocalyptic, just a serious movie. Or there's stuff that is a little bit more over the top, like in this, like the shirt ripping contest is so funny. <laughs> what, did I, what did I write in my notes uh, with that scene? Uh, I was like, oh yeah, some real Gaston behavior here with the shirts and chests. And I think that this uh, movie uh, holds up being an 80s movie as well, but I think the uh, a lot of it is on the strength of its characters. It's one of the films that you really notice Miyazaki's style of making a film up as he goes along, but it doesn't feel um, <laughs> less for it, even on a rewatch, because... It's that sense of writing yourself into a corner and trying to figure out how to write yourself out of a corner because that without cheating as well. And I think he really succeeds in, in this, you know, because a lot of screenwriters, when they're making movies like this, will uh, avoid getting the character captured or making the, the characters do something that makes no sense just to get them to the next stage. It's almost like he mm -hmm. goes, okay, the villains are stronger than these characters so it makes sense that they'll be captured and stuff it's like oh what happens next it's almost improvisational in a way that it's uh, the yes and approach to improvisation the instead of saying <laughs> no like for an idea it is take it on board and see where it goes and i think that it gives the movie a kind of 
shagginess to it that matches the the pirates and i think that it has an <laughs> equal love for its characters and their weirdness and their um little ways i love the like the little details like whenever the the brothers all show up to to help her cook uh it's so cute like i love this movie i think that somebody described it that said um i think it's john larson the guy from film spotting oh yeah i think that is uh, that is very apt that the the feeling that this movie elicits is one of buoyancy that it makes you like <laughs> it lifts you up and i think that it is very um apt i think the creativity is amazing and the just there's very few films that are able to create as many memorable mid- images as this and you can see uh, the influence that it has had in western culture throughout from movies like uh the robots are very clearly uh inspiration iron for uh, the iron giant for the the robots in uh, the fucking Jula movie was it the captain skyfall in the world of tomorrow or some shit oh god yeah um which is such a flop movie name <laughs> yes exactly um <laughs> and i think that it makes me happy as a movie but also has such like little moments of love and understanding for nature and the world like the the that scene whenever the robot just picks up the spaceship and then there's like the little nest underneath there's a lot of uh uh moments and i think that again uh going back to what we talked about kiki i think that the female characters in particular are very strong in this movie and I think that, especially because it's a movie that is aimed a little bit more to children than other Miyazaki movies, it's it's always been like an interest of me that I don't think that there's a Miyazaki movie, well, with the exception of Princess Mononoke, because that is a very, very adult movie. Whenever there is Mm -hmm. like arms just being decapitated because of the strength of an arrow. Um, (laughs) So... Like not for kids. Yeah, that movie is definitely not for kids. But all the other Miyazaki movies are um, kid friendly, if not uh, completely designed for children to watch. Uh, and some of them are aimed to kids, and some are aimed to even younger kids. Like Ponyo is really for young children. It Ponyo, doesn't Ponyo. stop being wonderful, let's say. But and I think this is about the it's aimed at the age of the protagonists and i think that it it threads the needle perfectly that it is simple enough and um action-packed enough to keep kids attentions let's say but it has enough depth that it will reward their viewing of the movie but also rewards adults watching the movie and because it, it calls back to a lot of the history of cinema and stuff i love like the steampunkness of it all and how um how specific the movie is and because of that it engages you as an adult viewer and because he puts his um worries for the planet and they're very 80s worries and it's a pity that (laughs) those worries are still with us the idea of uh our relationship with technology and how technology itself will not keep us alive and in power and stuff like that then we as a society no matter how powerful our technologies are you can always be the last generation of the civilization and in this case the movie makes a very clear point that it is both the obsession with uh, with technology the obsession uh, the disregard of the natural world and a militaristic approach to life it's a trifecta that it's only uh mm. liable to lead us to certain doom and i think that 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 trifecta still remains oh, with us ding. Uh, <laughs> and yeah but at the same time it is a movie incredibly depressing because you're watching this and you go shit things have not changed things are perhaps worse we knew <laughs> my entire lifetime ago we knew but at the same time it is still joyful because there is that center of hope that people can change and people will change and that there's always people that are willing to think outside the box to be a pirate if you will of ideas 
and I think that it is a, <laughs> a, a wonderful movie and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, what did you think of La Puta, Castle in the Sky? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it goes without saying that uh, Miyazaki is a gas man. Uh, <laughs> and I always forget how which of a character he is until like I have to let go and research him and then I remember it. Like, there are several videos on YouTube of him making ramen, one of which is, uh, I, yeah, it's maybe like 10 years old or something. I can't remember what movie it is they're working on, but um, it's it's in the studio, and which is this tiny, tiny little building that they work in, like in Studio Ghibli, uh, and they're on deadline. So everyone's just there like, you know, 14 hours a day. It's ridiculous. But like every evening at 11 p.m., uh, they take turns to make dinner. So there's one day when it's uh, Miyazaki's turn. So he's making ramen, but he's making ramen for like 10 people. So he's got like the nests of the dried ramen noodles and he's trying to like shove them into a saucepan and stuff. And he's like, I think this was the limit. So he's just like this little bat. And like, he's so funny. And they all clearly like are very close to him and stuff as well. Like it's it's just delightful. And then there's another video of him making ramen as well. <laughs> why is this a thing uh he also is obsessed with uh this car called the citroen 2cv which is like kind of like an uglier beetle i guess like they're they're very 60s uh cars they don't obviously don't make them anymore yeah i love that has car one from, like, teardrop he car, has yeah. them for like uh they stopped making them in like the 90s or something so he has a really really old one um which is great in a way because it kind of sums up uh, him owning the car it really sums up the many contradictions uh that exist within Miyazaki as like a person and a character and you know what he puts into his movies and stuff and there's a really great uh quote from him talking about um his father and how like his father obviously had a factory that made planes during the war and all this stuff um so his he sees his father his father never wanted to like apologize for that either so he sees his father as this very contradicting character as well but he said uh, uh, I am like him a man of contradictions a filmmaker who condemns condemns the proliferation of images even as he contributes to it an artist who has devoted his career to children but was rarely home to take care of his own an environmentalist who can't bear to give up his cigarettes or wheezing car a professed luddite who revels in the mechanics of modern vehicles but tries not to draw them in a fashion that further feeds an infatuation with power which I think is, wow. And I, I remember I was reading and looking at lots of things yesterday um, that pointed out that whenever, I think it actually, you know, it might have been the uh, Royal Ocean Film Society video, I think, which is really great. The one about the airships uh, and how the kind of like the pirate's ship is very like handmade and steampunk and very like tactile and stuff, whereas all the military style uh like crafts in this film, the new Liver film, are very like aggressive and like brutish, and you know there's a real distinction between, say, like the the planes that he's designing and dreaming of, and the wind rises, and then the actual planes that the military are are driving and stuff. Um, there's actually there's a, there's a documentary from like 2013, I think, uh, which is sort of about Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki. Um, it's called The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. Um, I think it's it follows him around that time, uh, possibly the last time he said he was going to resign, uh, which is very, very funny because there's like a little clip of him standing there where he's like, and this time I mean it. <laughs> and the entire room just laughs. They're like, okay. <laughs> um, also, I, I feel like I relate to him on a, a certain level because uh, he hated learning to drive. It's like the the... The thing he hated doing most in his life was learning to drive. And I, I really relate to that. Um, and he said he only did it because his wife was pregnant. Um, also, I read in the New York Times article yesterday that uh, his wife, who he apparently asked to stay home with the children, she was also an animator and he like asked her to do it. So she did. She gave up her job, look after the kids. And he's like, yes, she's never forgiven me. And I was like, damn right, Miyazaki. Uh the thing I love about Ghibli is um, how, like, sort of globally successful the studio is. Uh, like, I find it quite comforting that, because uh, even this this film, I never heard of it or anything. Um, and uh, it was on Netflix, no problem. Like, 
not all his films I think are on Netflix, but the vast majority of them are. I think all the Studio like, Ghibli movies the... are in Netflix now. They got yeah, well, at least like, in that's... Netflix in Ireland, but not only just uh, Miyazaki's like Takahata's and yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. Like the... the last few ones that were directed by other directors as well. Yeah, which I find very comforting because, and also, um, uh, usually with the podcast movie, if I think it's a film that John would like as well, I'll say to him, like, I'm going to watch it tonight if you want to watch it. Um, so I was like, oh, it's a Miyazaki movie. And he's like, oh, which one? And I said, and I said to the IMTV link, and he's like, oh, I've seen that. He's <laughs> like, oh, balls. Uh, but it's just funny that, like, they're so easily accessible like not just like as films themselves you could show them to anybody and they'll love them but also that it's quite easy to find them uh which is a fantastic like because you know they should be as big in, in people's houses as pixar movies are or like you know the classic golden age of holly or of uh of uh disney movies are speaking of uh <laughs> speaking of uh pretty enemies um uh i, I really like this film uh <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i mean like obviously i really liked it um i will say like i i will probably put this film at the bottom of the three we've done um and i know like we've done two very very strong ones before Wait, this even but um, more the like i remember that you had some criticism of the wind rises whenever we watched it so maybe uh like time has uh has softened you to that yeah. movie i suppose well, the thing about The Wind Rises is that although I don't... Like, Kiki is definitely number one for me of the ones we've done. Um, sitting with The Wind Rises, it's like, I think I have a respect for it because I like what he's doing, but I just don't love that movie because I had, like, some issues with, like, the female character and stuff. Um, which is annoying because in a Miyazaki movie, you kind of go into it with certain expectations because he has such, a, like, an auteur or whatever. Like, he has this sort of... in This vision of of all his movies like is it in the the royal ocean film society movie where he's talking about how um guillermo del toro talks about um how you're only ever making one movie your entire career is one movie you know they may be different themes or different genres or whatever but it's all one movie uh which is a great quote but um yeah you kind of you go and you sort of expect certain things and then whenever it doesn't quite live up to that in one sense or another because like, he is seen as someone who uh creates these fantastic female characters and you know role models for children and stuff there's a great article i think in the atlantic about um the writer uh is trans and uh she was talking about how growing up those female characters in uh um like in Miyazaki movies were so inspirational because they were so well-rounded. It was something that you could really aspire to, to being as a child and stuff, which is quite interesting as well. But um, uh, yeah, I, I think like there's a few things in this that like, although like I really, really liked it, there are like a few things that sort of like set it back a little bit for me. And like, they don't ruin the movie at all because like, as you were saying, uh, it's so well paced as an adventure movie and like fucking hell it's two hours long and it rips along like I couldn't believe it whenever the film started wrapping up and I was like wait what and I looked at my watch and I was like oh shit um I yeah I do I think it might have a little bit of a villain problem um like I was reading a thing yesterday about like uh the point of doubt that this is because I've only seen like maybe five Miyazaki movies I think um but that he all this is the one of the few films where he has like an unsympathetic sort of one note villain which i think is kind of interesting like he's he's kind of interesting i suppose but he you know he's a little bit just sort of like evil for he just wants power you know the army just wants money kind of thing you know and like i don't it's it's like a little bit one dimensional like it's not bad May it's not I... like defend the movie if i could in this place because i think uh, i can't remember if i read it somewhere or not but i think yeah. it, uh, especially on rewatching and stuff i think it's uh, the the point is very clear since uh both the villain and what's the main girl's name again Sheeta. they're both the villain and Sheeta are from the same family and it's the idea mm. of the two sides of the same coin kind of thing that she is in a way perfect and he's completely evil let's say and i think it's coming from the idea that let's say japanese culture in the 80s is like that japan or america can do no wrong 
and it's showing mm. how being from a place and from a family and from one thing doesn't mean that you have by birth any any power or rights to have it it just happens to be that she locked into having the the amulet and having the power mm. it, the the world looked looked in that it was a good person that had it but it's the problem with that type of power that it's just by sheer luck that if it's passed on from generation to generation based purely on status of birth that you can't um guarantee that the next person is going to be a good person to have it and i think having the villain to be exactly dynamically opposite her what she is and what she stands for but at the same time coming from the the same place Mm. Uh, and again it also shows that he was the type of mentality that destroyed la puta like it might not work as a movie let's say but i think as uh, the parable that he's trying to say uh, having the character be a little bit more sympathetic would uh, dilute the the argument that he's making i suppose so i don't know i don't know if i agree completely yeah. with you with the, the uh, that it makes the film worse i could agree but i think that as an overall message i think that it's required to be a weaker character yeah, I maybe one-dimensional is the wrong wrong word, but I think this kind of feeds into what you were saying there. But the other problem I kind of had that I kind of find Cheetah a little bit bland, like, and I think like what you're saying how for in order for that sort of uh, message to work, he has to be very extreme and she has to be very extreme in her way, which makes her sort of like like perfect and innocent and and like. I don't know. I just I found her much less interesting than even like Pazu as a character. I found you know what I mean because he has like because she is supposed to be kind of blank because she can't remember things or things start to come back to her. There's an awful lot of people having to explain things to her and stuff. And his inner life is more interesting because he's like an orphan and you know he's very capable and all this stuff where it's like even though as the movie progresses she gets more and more chances to like do stuff and whatever it's i think because like i mean the scenes whenever it's just sheeta and like you know her evil relative it's kind of like you know it that that those scenes were like the least interesting i find in the, in the ending whereas like whenever Sheeta and her together I find it more interesting because like he's able to like he's on her level if you know what I mean like even just like age-wise and whatever and like they both have this they have a lot of stuff in common and everything and they can kind of like bond and everything um but I think it's the the problem is like uh because the bar is so high with Miyazaki with characters that like <laughs> and like I think part of it is maybe that he's sort of bound a little bit by the genre that he's working in here is like adventure movies and stuff and and like I have no problem with that because it's such a it's this a very very good genre film um so it was it was never bad it, it was just a little like you know oh, okay and like at the time I wasn't really annoyed it was only afterwards I will say though I think something that may have possibly colored this uh my opinion of this is uh uh i had i'd I'd asked john if i could borrow the tv because he was like playing um he was playing spider-man uh on the ps5 uh and he was like oh yeah no problem so uh he came in then he was like oh i have i i found it on netflix i've set it up for you and i was like oh god so uh i went in so it was already on so i just like you know got a glass of wine and hit play didn't even think about the dubbing or whatever and uh, so it starts off, and it was actually grand to begin with, because like there's not a whole lot of dialogue at the start. But wait, did you watch um, it in English uh, or in Japanese? I started. I started with it in English. So Pazu is, I think it's James Vanderbeek yeah. from, uh, yeah, because this did this didn't come out until um, like it didn't get released in uh, in America. I think until 1999 or something. So that would have been like his peak uh, Dawson's Creek time, which is quite funny. Um, so his voice is is very inoffensive. Like, it works well. You can kind of see him as... And, like, young Dawson kind of works for Pazzi as well. So it was all, it was all fine. Um, and then... <laughs> also, uh, Sheeta doesn't have a lot of lines for a while. Like, most of the time, she's just sort of like, oh. And then... <laughs> they're underground. So Sheeta is voiced by Anna Paquin. He has a very specific voice. And as soon as she starts talking, I was like, ah! 
I went to Boston and go, oh my god, what am I doing? So I switched over to the Japanese then. And holy fuck, it, oh my god, it like blew my mind. I was like, this is so much better. So I wonder maybe I was like a little bit sort of colored by that. <laughs> I was like, hmm. Uh, but yeah, holy shit. Why would you ever watch the dub version of these? Like, it, it really... It's just they, it, like they usually ugh. get a good cast, but because everything is so methodically to be what it is, let's say Miyazaki's movies for good or for bad, that I think that yeah. uh, just the tone of a voice can change completely a character. Like you, you, if you watch yeah. House Moving Castle, <clears throat> have you seen House Moving Castle? Uh, I think so. Like Christian Bale plays. I feel Hal, like I have, and it's a very good performance, but his voice is not right for the look of the character. Uh, if you know what I mean, and it's just yes. it changes the character ever so slightly. Yeah, it just feels wrong. It's like you get a weird sort of uncanny valley feeling or something. And the, but just going back to Castle in the Sky, I think that the uh, the. I think I agreed with you the first time that I watched it uh, regarding Shida and her passivity. But re-watching it, I think it makes the movie makes a number of uh, scenes that it points out to her similarity to Dora the mother. And how mm. uh, Dora herself says something like that. She required the freedom to become herself. And in a way, I think that Sheeta is like showing how like that Dora can see herself that she's kind of oppressed in a certain way either by being a prisoner before but not just being a prisoner of her relative but being a prisoner of her station and her family let's say not being able to be who she is and I think that the mm. idea of becoming a space pirate even the saying that it's like you you have to be okay with being like shunned by everybody and they take no moment to to like I I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if this movie was big in the gay community because I think that there's a lot of illusions about about being who you are and not who society tells you to be. No apologies. Exactly, yeah. and like there's okay to wear really oversized pink trousers instead of a dress whenever you're. <laughs> because <laughs> she holds them up and she's like what and then she puts them on and she's like i was like that's actually quite chic it's a look um i will say <laughs> i was kind of confused as to like what age they're supposed to be because the sultans because obviously like uh all, <laughs> the sultans seem a lot older than Sheeta and pazu so when they're kind of like lusting after her i was like wait what <laughs> just for a second i was like i i don't i don't understand what age they're supposed to be is this weird they have beards like <laughs> like i think the it, it's more that like the movie makes it goes to enough lengths not to sexualize her that i think that even that that is kind of like more the idea of like a woman being there rather than her who's not their thing. mother yeah yeah maybe uh, yeah, I don't know. It just it, it it flagged in my brain a little bit. I don't know. It felt a little bit weird, and I was like, I don't know why that feel like because it. even like it, it it doesn't have as we'll say like a male gaze kind of situation. It doesn't beautify her. You know, there's not like no, the the the, the, the like the traditional kind of like over the top. Not not that Miyazaki has done it, but other lesser anime directors who have like the you see like sparkles coming from the face of the girl and then <laughs> the background blurs into stars you know what i mean like the... it is like it is um you can feel a lot particularly if you've ever if you've seen like i haven't seen a lot of anime or uh but like you know i've, I've seen enough to know what the tropes are you can really uh, like uh, miyazaki's been very outspoken about his feelings on certain japanese directors and stuff um also, actually, there's there's all these mad stories about Miyazaki, about how whenever uh, Spirited Away came out, there was this rumor that uh, Miyazaki hated Harvey Weinstein. So it was, uh, uh, what do you call him, that um, uh, distributed it in the States and uh, like his, his production company. So supposedly Miyazaki sent him uh, a sword with basically saying, 
no cuts on it because he'd been burned before where like studios had you know chopped out entire 20 minutes of his film in order to make it more palatable for audiences and stuff but apparently it wasn't actually Miyazaki who did it but it was his producer that did it and Miyazaki did not indeed like uh Harry Weinstein so you know um that's pretty but, cool uh, like uh, the yeah <laughs> no cuts um can we uh can we take a moment to talk about the robots yes like <clears throat> i i died of cuteness like as soon as the robot appears as in the one that's like dead i was like that's a good robot he's good he's gonna be alive and he's good and then he like they bring him back to life and he's like his little eyes his little like boop, boop. Uh, i love the little like, beeps you know, that it makes like <laughs> and then whatever like they get to Laputa and uh, <clears throat> uh, oh, also actually one thing about the uh, uh, the English language thing is that they don't say Laputa because Laputa is obviously a, a curse word in Spanish <laughs> so in English when they say like Laputa <laughs> it's like they say it as if there's like a U at the end of it it's so weird it's like but they're like really sort of tripping over it to say it it's really funny it's supposed that it's kind of weird because it comes from Gulliver's Travel, so uh, Jonathan yeah. Swift really didn't know Spanish to just name something the prostitute. Is that where the name comes yeah, from? Yeah, because there is a, like a fictional oh. uh, casa oh, in the sky funny. from Gulliver's Travel, which is kind of like interesting, you know, reappropriation, cultural appropriation from like a Japanese point of view, like taking it and imbuing it into Japanese culture, but also european culture because mm. of the big mixing pots of studio ghibli but you were saying sorry the robots oh oh god yeah and like and immediately i was like iron giant and then he like picks her up and i was like iron giant <laughs> he's so funny but like i mean they're they're not bad they're not bad uh comparisons uh <laughs> whenever he picks it up and the bird is underneath and like there's like two or three robots whenever they actually get to Laputa and uh uh they all have like different sort of patterns of like grass and moss and birds and stuff on them and like I was literally like he looks after the birds and I wrote like in my notes there's like 15 crying emojis and then the the little foxes <laughs> that are running on his shoulder and stuff the the three foxes yeah. or uh as alex called them the pokemons <laughs> they, they do look like pokemon what pokemon do they i feel like it's not like a a first gen pokemon it's one of the like ones that they added on later that's kind of foxy probably called no, foxymon from the original 52 there's a foxy <laughs> little pokemon uh not like not foxy in a not foxy in a sexy way like foxy in a like like fox-esque way. we are not there's sexualizing no pokemon, pokemon so that's not something we do here and then as well like i think that the soundtrack in this movie like studio ghibli movies always have great soundtrack but soundtrack of this movie is so modern like it feels almost like hans zimmer it like. sounded it it sounded really familiar like they're the opening of the movie there's like parts of that track where i was like this is someone has stolen this like in the way of like uh in the mood for love and uh a single man have like the same soundtrack i was like there's something something yeah and then i meant to look it up and see if like someone had used it for something because it was so familiar uh yeah the uh the soundtrack is just fantastic i love the fucking little characters in this movie as well like the the engineer in the train he's like oh why not yeah <laughs> like, but he's like you expect him to be this like gruff dude and he's just like oh hey Pazu, get hop on you can help me <laughs> and he's it's like is this as fast as it goes he's like yes it's old <laughs> and i like uh, you like how the movie does uh, like little things that never calls back to like the guy that lives amongst the rocks he who's a miner and then oh, uh, he's yeah. like, oh, i'd like to be here whenever the the rocks are stirring and then he has a kind <laughs> of um spell like almost like an addict whenever he sees the the gem that she has the crystal yeah 
he's like put that away <laughs> it's like this guy's witnessed this but rock before like, even that that it gives you kind of an idea of the power and the cor- how corruptive the power of that technology could be in the wrong hands and i think that it is in a way uh, more prescient now than it was in the 80s because technology in the 80s we weren't yeah. as much prisoners to technology as we are now like obviously technology has moved the world forward in a lot of ways both in societal terms and has given a, a rise to you know like even if you're in the middle of nowhere as long as you have the internet you can pretty much access anything in the human knowledge base let's say that has been accumulated over centuries but at the same time it has come at a certain price also most importantly the not that we needed it anymore but like the consolidation of power to very few individuals worldwide is becoming like more and more prevalent and i think that I don't think that fucking Miyazaki would have been able to make a more prescient movie nowadays about the, the dangers of technology and our obsession with it and our idea that it is um, like Indiana Jones, a holy grail. That it is the thing to fix everything. It's like, don't fix yourselves. Just fix like the given technology like we as a species have not evolved at all for the last three thousand years but the world we live in has like we're the same like uncivilized people that be walking around hitting each other with clubs ten (laughs) thousand years ago but now we have nuclear weapons and the internet and everything else and i feel I feel like in a way it's it's so much more depressing now than like say it was in the 80s because in the 80s we knew about climate change to a certain extent we knew that there were dangers to technology like we'd already invented enough things to be able to be aware that like you know especially the 80s renowned for its greed and consumerism and everything and at the time people knew that this was a bad thing but they didn't know you know it's not like now where we look back on like you know, three, four decades of of just the consequences of all the progress that we've made, you know, and we know that it's bad and yet we're not doing anything about it. And that's what's so much more depressing than like in the 80s, at least. You had like, you had an excuse to be ignorant, you know what I mean? Whereas now there is no excuse for inaction on all these things. And yet I think that like uh, in a certain degree, like technology nowadays and our approach to technology is very much like my old approach to smoking before I quit, which is <laughs> I know it's very bad for me, but boy, oh boy, it is good to smoke. <laughs> you know, like it's. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't give a rat that it is like shaving like fucking years of my life because these next five minutes are gonna be the best five minutes of my life because I have a pint in one hand and a cigarette in the other and fuck everything else. And I think that our approach to technology individually is the same. Not to say like who are we to say about people not using technology? We're recording a podcast through a computer you're in the other side <laughs> of the the planet and we're <laughs> arguing against technology to a certain degree but i think it's more the the actual almost canonization of uh technology and the ones that produce it like uh i think oh uh, god it's uh, like that bill gates documentary on netflix the one that's like a guy who was obsessed with Bill Gates when he was growing up. So then he finally gets to make this film about him, which is just him interviewing Bill Gates and talking about how great he is. I'm like, no. And people keep bringing Bill Gates on as like a guest on CNN. And they're like, oh, here we have Bill Gates here to talk about this thing. I'm like, unless you're, to, you're there to interview him about his company, why is he there? I, I don't. It's like this rich man has opinions. Let's ask him yeah, it's about like how fucking... bad he is at distributing aid in various countries in Africa. <laughs> what was uh, your favorite thing? Um, I think my favorite thing is uh, the pacing of the movie. It's really just fucking... It just goes. Like we were saying before, it's... 
one of the few films that if there was any doubt ever that the New York Times is a trash mag is that the reviewer of the New York Times says that this movie would test the patience of both children and adult audiences. And I'm like, what drugs were you on when you watched this movie? Well, like, what happened to you? Who hurt you? What was your favorite thing uh, on this movie? Uh, My favorite thing is Miyazaki. uh, Just because... He's, oh God, he really is a character. And like, he has that outlook that's uh, like very humanist, but also very tinged with like darkness, kind of in the way of someone like Werner Herzog or, or like Kurzmaki or something, where it's like they, they, they care very deeply for people and, and, and like the human race and stuff. And, and they, they try to see like the good elements in them. But at the same time, like, they are under no illusions that we live in a very, dark time and always have and probably always will um and it's interesting to see that like played out through animation as well because it's like it's sort of a, a sort of different level um in what are ostensibly like kids movies in a way like some of them are some of them aren't but this this one especially it, it really is and when you compare it to something like the lorax where they're trying to like hammer home that like dr Seuss environmentalism and it's really bad and in this it's just like it's there and it's quite blatant, but it's very it's subtle in a lot of ways as well. And you could watch this and not get it if you were, you know, trying to actively ignore environmentalism. Uh, so yeah, it's it's great. Uh, what was your least favorite thing? Uh, the feeling of despair uh, somehow awakened inside of me. Something that Don't Look Up didn't because, you know, like for satire and stuff <sighs> like that, you had to hit a note, a very specific note that... Yeah. Like, this is not satire, but in a way, because it is commenting about something, making a very specific point about something, it has to, you know, it's the same way that, like, I know this is not an episode about Don't Look Up, but I think it's kind of interesting to it both as a movie, but as a failure more than anything, but also, like, the, the yeah. discussions behind it. But if you compare it to something like... um the big short that it actually elicits that kind of situation of like how do we let it happen but most importantly the people that do it are not necessarily evil they're just very short-sighted and i think that this movie <laughs> captures that as well the, the idea that like what you're saying that the army just wants more money it's such a like mm-hmm. you know they go to the biggest source of power in any civilization ever and their biggest worry is to loot the fucking place. You know, <laughs> like it's... And I think it's having this kind of blinker mentality. I, I I know that as a character makes the general, colonel, or major, whatever rank he is, not as interesting as a character, but as a comment on society is far more uh, pointed, let's say. And I think it's the same mm-hmm. with the, the guy... That the fact that the only person that is dressed well in the entire movie and uh, like carries himself as like you know the the hero that's the bit that I like that makes it more dimensional as well as a character I think is that you clearly see that he feels like he's the hero in his own story mm-hmm. and no point it has even remotely crossed his mind that he might be the body and I think that like that's kind of like funny in its way like the <laughs> he he's so disgusted when he loses because he's like how can I lose I'm the good guy you know mm-hmm. it's almost like a character with all he the power knows he's a character in a story but he thinks he's a mm-hmm. different character in that story and I think that that's interesting in itself what's your least favorite thing about the movie uh, I think maybe that this film didn't work if you know what I mean as in like this film and other movies like it that are so prescient and have a very clear message and feel very affecting and blah, blah, blah. Not, you know, that people watched this in the 80s when it came out and then people watched it whenever it got released in the States and in Europe or whatever. And it didn't it didn't move anybody. Maybe it moved some people, but it didn't move the right people. You know what I mean? And it's like, maybe if like, maybe, I don't know, maybe little baby Al Gore watched it. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? But at the same time, you know, it didn't. It didn't melt enough hearts as 
the ice caps melt. Oh, yeah, like uh, uh, so. then, like uh, <laughs> Al Gore would bomb the shit out of Serbia, but just in an environmentally friendly way. <laughs> Uh, yeah, these oh are God. electric drones that we fly here I feel like they've got solar panels on them uh, <laughs> we're actually we've got to net zero now uh, with our wars uh, it's all cyber now uh, yeah no it's uh, it's we, fuck we've really ended on a depressing note here uh, we're actually we're such an optimistic happy. movie it's, it's yeah <laughs> it's a good movie the robots are adorable uh so uh <laughs> Ricardo, if they want to go back and listen to our other two uh Miyazaki episodes one of which was our second ever episode uh and our other one which was our I think our second episode in Canada our third one maybe I think uh so it's pretty much around two years ago exactly that we we did Kiki so Jesus uh, time fucking us? flies by doesn't it like uh, I suppose that the the uh so Miyazaki is only allowed out whenever there's like big life changes uh, <laughs> yeah, uh this time was my haircut probably because not having a haircut for two years and then getting it it's kind of like <laughs> life change you know I feel like a different man my my neck doesn't hurt because of all the fucking weight in my head but <laughs> that's good isn't it Right, so yeah, they can find us on Facebook, The Recommendation Game, at The Rec Game on Twitter, uh, The Recommendation Game on Instagram. Uh, they No, we don't have Instagram. <laughs> Lol. We do not have, <laughs> we do not have Instagram. No. Um, uh, we are um, on Dublin Digital Radio every second Monday, 11 to 12. And you can find our back episodes on the Dublin Digital Radio Mixcloud and or your podcaster of choice. So Orla's Ooh. pick is next. So what are we watching, Orla? We're watching Pig. <laughs> Our first Nicolas Cage movie. Uh, I'm very excited uh, to talk about this Bananas movie. And uh, I feel like feeling sad again. So that was... Uh... <laughs> Do you want to play a game? So yeah. Until uh, until then, uh, I was Orla Gunas. And I was... Ricardo Deacon. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks' time. Keep it chill, folks. <laughs> <laughs>